0: I don't know if you read recently Chick-fil-A was trying to get into the University of Nebraska in the student center, and basically there was a number of people that decided they did not want Chick-fil-A at the University of Nebraska, and they won, which often the minority does. And the reason why is because Dan Cathy, who's the CEO, basically takes a traditional view on marriage. Now, he's not vociferous about his view but everyone knows Chick-fil-A stands for a traditional marriage. Well, they didn't want it on campus. And so as I read the article, one particular gentleman said this, and you'll notice it up on the screen, it is true, he, that is Dan Cathy, is entitled to his views. That doesn't mean he is immune to any fallout related to those views, true. And then he says this, and this is what caught my attention, it's the price you have to pay for living in the dark ages. End quote. I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. I don't know the spiritual condition of the man who said that, but he realized that we are living in dark days. In fact, the Bible describes it as the last days. What are the last days? The Bible uses that phrase a lot. The last days refers to that time period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. When Jesus ascended back to heaven, the last days began. And we're in those last days, and the next event on God's divine timetable is the second coming of Jesus Christ, or we would say the rapture of the church. And so, here's the question this morning. How are you and I to be faithful to God in these last days? Because we know that the time in which we're living in is getting darker and darker. How can you and I remain faithful to God? How can we remain passionate in our walk with God and in our faith? Well, I invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And this morning, we're going to be looking at all of chapter 3 and a part of chapter 4. And the title of this message is, How to Be Faithful to God in the Last Days. Now, this particular gentleman called it the dark days. And really, in one sense, the two are interchangeable. But Paul here is going to describe to Timothy the characteristics of what it's going to be like in the last days. And listen, if this was true in Paul's day and in Timothy's day, how much more is it true in our day? Paul here is going to give a litany, which he often does in many of his epistles. He gives a list of many of the vices that are going to be prominent during the last days. Let's look at them, and then we're going to see how Paul instructs Timothy as to how he's to respond and how you and I are to respond in the last days in order to be faithful to God. He says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, but mark this, Timothy, there will be terrible or difficult or ugly times in the last days. In other words, it's going to get bad. It's going to get dark. And then He describes it for us, and this really sounds like the internet. When you read the news, when you watch the television, He says, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, or blasphemous, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, and that refers to gross indecency, without love or natural affection. It refers to parents that kill their children. We're seeing an escalation of that. Unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, which means savagery, and we're seeing more acts like that committed in our culture, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Our culture, if there's one thing driven by our society, it is the pursuit of pleasure. That has been the end of all things. And notice it's a religious society. In verse 5, having a form of godliness, there's an outward form of religiosity or spirituality, but there is no power. There's no genuine Christianity. And so Paul here delineates the characteristics in his day, and even in our day, that are going to exist in the last times. One of the things that I like to study up is on the Titanic. I know they have a Titanic exhibit in New York. And if you ever watch documentaries on the Titanic, one of the things you notice when it hit the iceberg, it did not hit it on directly, head on. It actually skirted by it, but what happened was the ice cut a line on the bottom of the boat, and that's what ultimately sunk the ship. And you see, our society is like the Titanic. We are headed towards the iceberg of wickedness, and we have hit the iceberg of wickedness head on, and what's happening is our culture and our society right now, we are sinking. We are sinking. And the question is this, how is the church to respond? Because ultimately, we're accountable to God. God is going to judge the world. Paul says God will deal with those on the outside. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, we're to deal with those on the inside. Judgment begins, First Peter says, in the house of God. So ultimately for us, we're called to be faithful to God in the muck and the morass of our culture. And so what Paul's going to do for Timothy here and for you and I is he's going to delineate for us several responses that you and I are to have if we're going to stay faithful to God, not just Sunday Christians only. That's part of being faithful. But faithfulness to God means walking with God. We're not going to be perfect. But it means being passionate in our relationship to God. Let me give you several suggestions this morning. Number one, if you're going to be faithful to God in the midst of this corrupt culture, separate from its corrupting influence. Separate from its corrupting influence. Notice, if you will, verses five through eight. Paul says to Timothy, after he delineates all those characteristics, he says, Timothy in verse five have nothing to do with such people. Timothy, I want you to watch your associations. I don't want you to get caught up in the corruption of the society because, listen, you and I know that society will exert its corrupting influence upon us. In the Northeast, when I was living there for almost 12 years, they have a convenience store. Never heard of them before until I went up there. They're called Wawa's. W-A-W-A, Wawa. And when I first got up there, I said, what's Wawa? It's kind of the counterpart to our 7-Elevens here, but Wawa's are great with food. Well, I remember going in one time and I came out and I smelled like a cigarette. And I don't smoke cigarettes. But so many people had gone in and out of the store that had smoked, literally the influence of the smoke had rubbed off on me. When I got home, my wife said to me, she said, did you take up smoking? I said, no. What do you mean did I take up smoking? She said, you stink like a cigarette. And I said, because that's, I was in Wawa just being in there, the influence of that smoke rubbed off on me. And what he's telling him, he says, Timothy, I want you to separate from these individuals. And notice, out of the muck and mire of this culture, there's going to emerge false teachers that are basically corrupting influence. He says in verse 6, they are the kind, that is the false teachers, who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women. They do it through books, they do it through television, they do it through internet. And these women are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, and that's typically what false teachers do, is they prey on the weak. And notice about these false teachers, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. They may be religious, but they're bankrupt spiritually. And he uses an analogy to show us what they are like, just as Janus and Jambres, verse 8, opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds. They are corrupted in their thinking. They cannot make proper moral judgments, who as far as the faith is concerned, they're rejected. They're not saved. They're unregenerate. But they will not get very far, verse 9, because as in the case of those men, that is Janus and Jambres, their folly will be clear to everyone. And so he's saying, look, in the society in which you're living in, Timothy, in which we're living in now, there's all these corrupting influences, whether it be through media, whether it be through internet, whether it be through teachers. Out of this muck and mire is going to emerge these false teachers that are going to prey on people. And the principle that he's making here is this, if you and I are going to stay faithful to God in the midst of a perverted and wicked generation, we must separate from its corrupting influence. Now, you and I know that Jesus calls us to reach the world. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus said, I'm leaving you in the world, but I don't want you to be a part of the world. And you see, you and I walk that tight rope because we're called to reach a lost and dying world. Jesus was the consummate missionary because He left the glories of heaven, He became like us, and Jesus was the ultimate missionary. But we know Jesus was in the world, but He was not of the world. And so you and I are to separate from the corrupting influence. And you see, we have to be careful that we don't allow the world to exert its influence on us in terms of adapting its values. And you see that's the problem in the American church is we have allowed the world to influence us to the point where our values, our beliefs and our ethics are no different than the world system. They've done studies on this. And they've shown that the divorce rate is even higher in the church. They've shown that immorality is just as high in the church. We're just as materialistic as people in the world. And listen, once the world exerts its influence on us and we get corrupted, we lose our distinction we got to be in the world, not of the world. About five years ago, Laura and I went on our favorite vacation. We went out west. We always wanted to go out west, so we flew into Utah, Mormon City, spent the night. We got up the next morning, and we drove to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, And we spent some time in Jackson Hole. If you've never been there, it's great. And then we did a tour of Yellowstone National Park. Well, I like to fish, so I told Laura, we got to go on the Grand Tetons. And so you'll see the picture there if you want to dim the lights real quickly to get a clear view of it. It was absolutely breathtaking. And so if you've never done a vacation, you need to go out there sometime. Well, we got on a boat. If you go to the next slide, here we are out in the water here. A guy took us out, and I had him as a captive audience. I shared the gospel with him the whole time. He couldn't get out and swim he was stuck. He was from West Virginia. Well, next slide here, you'll see where we caught some fish. I caught some trout, uh, brown or lake trout. We didn't get to eat them. But notice the boat is in the water, but the water is not in the what? Not in the boat. And you see, that's a picture you could turn the lights back on. That's a picture of how you and I are to be We're to be in the water of the world, but we're not to allow the world, the water of the world, to get inside our spiritual boat. And listen, this is a constant battle for all of us. That's why it's critical. We're in fellowship. We're in the Word. We're dealing with sin in our life. We're guarding our eye gate, our ear gate. And all those things, because what we allow in, garbage in, garbage out. And so, if you and I are going to remain faithful to God, the first principle is we must separate from the ungodly influence, but not isolate ourselves to the point where we're not willing to reach people that do not know Jesus Christ. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus… Was accused of being a drunkard, a wine bibber, and a friend of prostitutes. You see, Jesus held that delicate balance. So let me ask you a question this morning. Is there anything that God is speaking to you about this morning that you need to separate from? Is it a relationship that's pulling you down? Is it internet? Is it television? Listen, it's not always bad things. Sometimes it can be our jobs. We get out of balance, and what happens is the world system sucks us into its vortex, and we get pulled away from God. Well, there's a second principle that Paul gives to Timothy and you and I in terms of being faithful to God in the midst of a perverted generation, and that is we must follow godly examples. It's not enough just to avoid the negative. We must positively pursue that which is godly. Notice, if you will, verse 10 Paul here sets himself up in counter-distinction to the false teachers, and he says, you, Timothy, however, know about my teaching. Timothy, you know I'm different than the false teachers. You know that I'm different than the corrupting culture. He says, you know my teaching. I teach the truth. You know about my way of life you know about my purpose, that I'm here to glorify God. You know about my trust in God, my faith, my patience with other people. You know about my love for others and my endurance to bear up under difficult circumstances. Timothy, verse 11, you know that I've been persecuted and that I've suffered. And what kind of things happened to me on my first missionary journey in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra? You know that I was persecuted and that I endured it, and the Lord rescued me from all of them. He's saying, Timothy, you know that I'm different, and I want you to mimic my behavior. I am the one that you were to follow, Timothy. Do not follow the false teachers and the evil society in which you are living. And so here's a second principle that's very critical for you and I. If we're going to be faithful to God, it's not enough just to separate from the negative influences, but we must be intentional about pursuing godly associations, Now, obviously, in the church, you're going to find those godly associations when you come on Sunday morning, and there are people that we need to associate with that are going to pull us up spiritually, that are going to build us up spiritually. I remember in college, I went to Samford University when I graduated high school. I went to go and play football my first year, and then I realized that I was a small, small fish in a big pond, You know, in in high school, I did very well, but when you get to college, they're a lot bigger, they're a lot stronger, and they're a lot faster. And I went to a Division III school. Well, one of the guys was my roommate. You'll see his picture up on the screen. His name is Mark Burkhead. He said, Mike, they goofed my name up in the paper so many times when I played football. They called me Brickhead. They called me Birdhead. And I won't say the other name what they called him, but that's what he told me. And so Mark was an influence on me because Mark walked with God. And at the time, I was backslidden in my walk with God. I wasn't walking with the Lord, and the Lord was convicting me. But you know what? Mark was a steady influence in my life. He was a godly association for me. His mom used to send him books and he would read those books, and he would share with me what he was learning. And we would, when we'd go out partying, Mark would say, I'm not going with you guys. And I remember Mark had a serious girlfriend on campus, and he would talk to me about how he needed to remain pure. And whenever he blew it with his girlfriend, he would come back all guilt-ridden. I'm like, Mark, what's going on, man? Why are you feeling so bad? He's like, man, I blew it. I blew it. Mark went to church. He would often pull me to church. You see, Mark was a godly influence in my life. He was a godly association. And I'm sure all of you here this morning could say there's somebody in your life that marked your life. But listen, it's not just associations. I think there are people we need to be intentional about going after and getting people to mentor us. You see, we all, we all should have Timothys and Pauls in our life. A Timothy is someone that we're influencing, that we're discipling, that we're passing the truth down to them, but we all should have Pauls in our life, people that we're intentionally seeking out that are going to influence us. One of my professors in seminary, and I had a lot of great professors, but one in particular that stood out was Dwight Smith. In fact, Dwight Smith has done a lot of work here in Columbia at Crossroads Columbia Very, very strong leader, very strong, gifted teacher. He's pastored a number of churches. He's with Saturation Church Planning. Dwight Smith came into chapel one particular weekday, and I caught him giving an announcement, and I said, I got to take his class. And I took his class, and his class changed me forever. He really affected my doctrine of the church. And I remember I would seek him out. I would say, Let's get together. I'd always try to have coffee with him to pick his mind, ask him questions. He would have students over the house, and he was a really good influence. And you see, if you and I are going to be faithful in the last days, in the muck and mire of what's going on in our culture, we got to separate from the negative, but we got to be intentional about making sure we're not hanging around people that are going to pull us down. And this is why it is so critical that you watch who you date, especially if you're single. And you've heard John talk about this. If you date somebody that's not a believer or they're not even walking with God, what's going to happen is eventually they're going to pull you down in your walk with God. Now, I know some of you can't get away from this on your job. You're with non-believers, and some of you are with real raw pagans. You ever work with a raw pagan? Everything out of their mouth is corruption. You know what? Love those people and be a godly influence upon them. Well, there's a third thing that you and I must do if we're going to be faithful to the Lord in the midst of a corrupt generation, and that is we must expect and endure persecution. We don't look for it. We don't seek it out. But we can expect retaliation if we live for the Lord. Notice what he says to Timothy in verses 11 through 13. He says again, the persecutions I endured, Timothy, you know about those, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. And then he says this in verse 12, classic passage, we all know it. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, some areas of the country, other parts of the world, you're going to get more persecution, you're going to get more reprisal, because if you live for Christ, it's illegal. And thankfully, in America, we have a Christian heritage, and ostensibly, there's still somewhat of a Christian influence in this nation. But you and I know that opposition to Christ and Christianity has been escalating in the last 10 years. And why? Because he says in verse 13, while evildoers and imposters will go bad from bad to worse, people are getting worse and worse. There are levels of depravity. People are not as depraved as they could be. Some of the articles I read on the internet, I'm thinking to myself, what is going on with people in our culture? these people are deceived and being deceived. So, he says, Timothy, if you live for the Lord, you are going to be persecuted. He says, you need to endure that. You need to expect it. Chapter 4, he says, verse 5, endure hardship. He's talking there about persecution. And so, listen, if you and I in these last days are going to be faithful to the Lord, we cannot be surprised when persecution comes. What does 1 Peter chapter 4 say? Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes for your testing, watch what Peter says, as though something strange were happening. And let's be honest, we all get shocked, because we're living in a culture where most of us don't get persecuted, so when it happens, we say, Lord, what did I do wrong? Lord, why am I suffering persecution? Lord, I'm tithing. What's wrong here? And see, we get surprised. And again, it's not that we're to look for it, but it does mean that we live for the Lord, and when there's opportunity to speak up, we do it in a spirit of love, not worrying about the consequences. And let's be honest, that's tough at times. That's not always easy. And by the way, persecution typically happens in stages. We see this in our country. Here are the stages that it happens. And number one, it starts with stereotypes. Christians are religious nuts, they're homophobic, they have mental illness, like Joy Blair said of uh, Mike Pence. They're haters of science, they're Bible thumpers, they're hypocrites. Whatever you want to fit in there, we get stereotyped. It starts there. Then secondly, we get vilified. They speak evil of us in the media or at the music award ceremonies or the politicians in Washington. We get put down. Then thirdly, it leads to marginalization they relegate us to the margins of society. We have no voice no more. We're removed from the schools and from the government. We can't speak up without getting reprisal. And we see that going on in our culture where Christians are being marginalized. Then fourthly, we get criminalized. We're taken to court for our convictions. And so if you say, I'm not going to bake a cake because it violates my conviction, you're going to go to court and you're going to be slapped with a $150,000 fine and your business is going to be put out. Or a couple in Arizona recently, they said, if you don't stop having a Bible study in your house, we are going to fine you. And that's exactly what they did to this particular couple, because they said it's not zoned for that. And then finally, it leads to persecution. This could lead to physical persecution, verbal persecution, and in a lot of places, you get arrested. Now, it hasn't gotten to this point yet, I remember years ago, John probably remembers this, where a pastor in Houston, they were demanding that, he, that the pastors turn in their sermons to make sure that they're not saying anything about homosexuality because I believe one of the leaders in that city, she was a lesbian, and so they were demanding this. And you know what all the pastors did? They came together and they said, we dare you, we dare you to come against us. And of course, they backed down because they realized separation of church and state I like to get on the internet and talk to people. I get a lot of evangelistic opportunities, and I was having a conversation recently with a group of people. There was some article where I believe this toll in New York made a mistake, and they were charging people all this exorbitant money, and they said it should be free, blah, blah, blah. So I said, free? I said, let me put something in there about the freeness of the gospel. So here's what I put, and I posted. it. I said, the only thing free is the gift of salvation for those who repent and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. And then I put Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Well, I got several responses. Here was one of them. You didn't listen to your mother when she told you to stay away from drugs, did you? Or how about this one? This guy said, ah, it's you again. (laughs) He says, God doesn't exist. He said, go drink some bleach. Bleach. Now, listen, that's mild persecution. That's mild. But here's the question, people are you persecutable? Are you living in such a way that people would persecute you? We don't seek it out. We don't look for it. And we shouldn't be offensive as Christians. The Bible says, be wise, Colossians 4, in the way you handle outsiders. Let your speech always be seasoned with salt. We need to treat non-believers with grace. But listen, there are times when you take a stand, you're going to be persecuted. So the question is, are you persecutable or are you like the Antarctica? Are you frozen over at the mouth? Are you Satan-worthy? Listen, Satan doesn't mess with Christians who are not living for Christ. Satan doesn't mess with Christians who really aren't taking a stand for the gospel. Why? Because he knows if you're lukewarm, he's got you where he wants you. So, are you Satan worthy? worthy if it was illegal to be a follower of Christ in America, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Well, there's a fourth thing you and I must do if we're going to stay faithful to God in the midst of a corrupt and perverted generation, and that is we must stay connected to God's Word. Notice what he says in verses 14 through 17, well-known passage, very famous, but as for you, Timothy, in counter-distinction to the false teachers and the corrupt society, but as for you, Timothy, continue, abide by, pursue, follow after what you have learned, and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. He learned it from his grandmother and mother, Lois and Eunice. They're mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says, Timothy, I want you to continue in what you were taught because in verse 15, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. You've known the Old Testament, Timothy. You were taught the truth, and it actually saved Timothy, which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, Timothy, I want you to stay tethered to the Old Testament. I want you to stay tethered to the book that you were taught as a young child because it's that Word that was able to save your soul, Timothy. And not only did it save your soul, Timothy, but notice what the Word of God is able to do in addition in verse 16, all Scripture, graphe, all the writings of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament by way of extension is God-breathed. It's the exhalation of God. It's not breathing in inhalation. It is the exhalation of God. When God spoke the Word through the prophets and the apostles, and they wrote it down, it is the exhalation of God. It is God's Word. And notice he says, Timothy, not only does the Word save you, but it sanctifies you. He said it's useful for doctrine or teaching. The Word of God instructs us on how to live a godly life. And when we don't live a godly life, it rebukes us It shows us where we've gotten off the path, but then it corrects us, it shows us how to get back on the path, and then as we get exposed to the Word of God, both corporately and individually, what happens is we get trained in righteousness so that the servant or man of God or woman may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, that's the power of the Word. We don't need to veer from the Word. We need to be tethered to the Word of God. We need to imbibe the Word of God. That's why Colossians 3 says what? let the Word of Christ dwell within you richly. Last service, I talked about a pastor of a megachurch. They built another building, and the building wasn't quite finished yet. And so, one particular staff meeting, he called his staff together, and he said, we're going to go to the building that we're going to be soon occupying. And he gave all of his staff some hard hats, and he gave them some ink pens, and he gave them some Scripture verses out on paper, and when they went inside, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go in each of the classrooms, and the drywall hadn't even been put up yet. The carpet hadn't been laid. He says, I want you to take the verses that I've given you, and I want you to write them on the foundation, on the concrete of the building. And so they did, and then he finally called them together, and he said, what I've done is I'm reminding you that the foundation of this church is the Word of God. He says, soon, carpet's going to be put over those floors and cover up those verses. But I want to remind you that as a staff, the Word of God is our foundation. And so it is the foundation here at Calvary Chapel. It is the foundation of many churches in America. And so you and I need to make the Word of God the foundation of our life. We need to meditate on it, as Joshua 1 says. Look at all the benefits of Psalm 119. I read recently about how much you and I consume food on an average lifespan, probably 70 years, and here is what this particular article said. In the average lifespan of one person, 70 years, here's what you will consume. 150 head of cattle, 2,400 chickens, 225 lambs. I don't like lamb. Ugh. Twenty-six sheep. I don't eat sheep either. I think it was a lamb or a sheep. My dad one time, he ate the eyeball. I'm like, what's wrong with you? I did not come from you, Father. (laughs) My dad tries everything. 310 pigs. I know for me, it's way more. How many of you like bacon? Say amen. (laughs) How about this one? Twenty-six acres of grain and then 50 acres of fruits and vegetables. That's way low for me. Let me ask you a question. How much of God's Word are you consuming? And listen, it's not always volume. Although volume is good, it's the issue of whether or not we're being doers of the Word rather than just hearers. And I forgot to mention this in the last service. One book I would recommend to you, you'll notice it up on the screen, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible by Max Anders. If you want a bird's-eye view of the Bible… This is a great book because what he does is he takes you from Genesis to Revelation and he gives you a bird's eye view of the Bible. And then in the back, he breaks down the basic doctrines of the Bible. So I'd encourage you to get this book because it's going to help you get grounded in the Word of God. But listen carefully. Are you listening? Say amen. Don't substitute preachers and books by other authors for your own time in the Word of God. It is critical that you're in the Scripture, that you're tethered to the Word of God. So if you and I are going to be faithful to God in these last days, if we're not in the Scripture, we're not being washed by the water of the Word, you know what's going to happen? We're going to get spiritually dirty. We're going to drift. We're going to lose our passion because I can tell you this, there's a direct link between my passion for God, my zeal for God. There is a direct link between that and my time in the Word and my time in prayer and fellowship. Well, there's a fifth thing that you and I must do and that is we must preach the Word if we're going to be faithful to God in the midst of this perverted generation. Notice chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. He says to Timothy to motivate Timothy. He says, Timothy, in the presence of God, God's watching you, Timothy, and of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is watching you, Timothy. And ultimately, God and Jesus, they're going to judge the living and the dead. Timothy, you're going to stand before God and have to give an account of your ministry and your life. And because Jesus is coming back and He's going to set up His thousand-year kingdom, I give you, Timothy, this military command. It's a charge in the Greek. It is a military command. I want you to preach the Word. He doesn't say preach psychology. He doesn't say preach your opinion. He doesn't say preach your opinions. He says preach the Word of God. And by the way, Timothy, Be prepared in season and out of season. Do it when it's popular. Do it when it's not popular. And when you teach the Word of God, it's going to correct. It's going to rebuke. But it's also going to lift and encourage people. And do it, Timothy, with great patience and careful instruction. Why? Because people don't change overnight. People will oppose the Word of God. Paul, why do you want Timothy to preach the Word of God? Why does God want John Hoppe and Mike Nimmer and all the churches in America to preach the Word of God? Here it is in verse 3, for the time will come in the last days where there will be a famine of the Word of God. People will not put up with sound doctrine, healthy doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. In other words, tell me what what I want to hear, not what I need to hear. I want you to put on a dog and pony show. The pulpit now has become vaudeville. Pastors have become uh, quiz show hosts rather than teachers of the Word of God. And it says in verse 4, they will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. And this is going on in our day. I thank God for the legacy of Calvary Chapel. As you know, they are committed to biblical exposition. And I'm not saying that if everybody doesn't do it like us, they're not following God, they're not being faithful. That's not what we're saying. But we're simply saying this, you can't improve on God's Word. I had a professor say, open the Bible and let God speak. But you know what? In the pulpits today, we're embarrassed to let God speak. And you've got to teach the whole counsel of God. And sometimes it's not popular. Robert Nash, who is now deceased in heaven, he tells a story about one of his students he taught at a famous seminary in this country that was conservative. He had one of his students who was from Bowling Green, Kentucky. And so over Christmas, he went home, and while at home, he decided to just visit another church out of the blue. And as soon as the pastor opened his mouth, this particular student said, I knew I was in the wrong place. This big burly pastor got up and he said in his big booming voice, "He said, I want you to know that all religious beliefs are the same and all of it's true." Well, you and I know that that's not true, because that violates one of the first principles of logic, which is the law of non-contradiction. What I mean by this is this: We were at Five Points this uh, Friday night. We ran across two guys and uh, we said, "Hey, we're from a church in the area. How can we pray for you?" And one of the guys he was kind of drunk, you know, he was probably like this. And, and he said, you know, he said, I just want you to know that all religions are the same. And he says, we really are worshiping the same God. And I said, no, we're not. I said, because Islam says that Jesus is not the Son of God. Christianity says He is the Son of God. Both of those cannot be true at the same time and in the same relationship. That violates the law of non-contradiction. That's like saying the earth is flat and the earth is round and both of those are true. They cannot both be true. You and I know that violates logic. And so this particular student that was in the church, he hears his pastor say, all religious beliefs are the same. So he's kind of getting uncomfortable. Well, after the service, the student tried to bow out quietly, but he couldn't because he had to go through the door where the pastor was greeting everybody. And so he gave this student a big bear hug. And he said, hey, he said, where are you from? He said, well, I'm from Bowling Green. He says, I'm a seminary student. And he said, oh, great. He said, so tell me, what are your beliefs? He goes, after all, all beliefs are the same. He said, so tell me your beliefs. The man said, no, nah, you don't want to know my beliefs. He said, no, He says, I'm not going to get offended. He says, just tell me what you believe. He goes, are you sure? He goes, of course I won't get offended. So he said, come here. He cupped his hand and he said, you're going to hell. (laughs) And the man was startled. And he realized based on his beliefs, if all beliefs are true and all beliefs are the same… This guy, this student's belief was you're going to hell because you're not preaching the truth, and the man backed down, and he said, well, maybe I really don't believe that all religions are the same, and they all teach. See, this is the kind of mentality that we're getting in some of the pulpits today, and the Bible says we're to teach the Word of God. In fact, one person said there are too many longhorn sermons today in the church. You say, what's a longhorn sermon? It's a point here and a point there with a lot of bull in between. (laughs) Marvin Vincent said this. If people desire a calf to worship, a ministerial calf maker is readily found. In other words, people will get teachers to tell them what they want to hear. And so if we're going to be faithful in the last days, as the society grows darker and darker, you know what we need, people? You know what we need to pray for? We need to pray for a generation of preachers that are going to get up and preach the Word of God. And unfortunately, the generation coming up, they're not interested in that. Many of the old generation guys that many of us know and have grown up on, Chuck Smith, Charles Stanley, John MacArthur, and there's many, many more, many of them are now going to glory and yet there's a generation coming up that's not preaching the Word of God, and this is so critical because if we get away from the Scripture, what you have is Yale, you have Harvard, you have Princeton, you have Brown. These schools started off as missionary schools that sent missionaries out. Now they're apostate because they've drifted from the Word of God. Well, there's a sixth thing that you and I must do if we're going to stay faithful to God in the midst of a perverted and corrupt generation, and that is we must be spiritually alert. Notice what he says in verse 5, but you, again, a contrast, Timothy, be sober in all things. Now, what does he mean here by be sober? Well, you could take that literally to mean, Timothy, I don't want you to get inebriated. I don't want you to get drunk. Make sure you're alert. And we know people that have been drunk before. What happens? They lose their spiritual or their, their natural sensitivity. They're not alert to what's going on. Their their, uh, responses are delayed. And he could be saying that to Timothy, but I doubt that's what he's really saying. I think he's using this metaphorically, and he's saying, Timothy, I want you to be spiritually alert to what's going on around you. Why? Because in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8, it says, the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And what does he say? Be of sober spirit. Uh, Peter says, be on the alert. And listen, you and I have to be on the alert because Satan, he is a strategist. Ephesians chapter 6 says that Satan uses schemes and he uses weapons in order to pull us away from God. And listen, he doesn't always use the big sins. See, we got to be alert to spiritual complacency. That's the biggest thing that I think Satan's using to cripple the American church is materialism. And listen, there's nothing wrong with having material possessions, there's nothing wrong with enjoying what God has blessed us with, but what happens is Satan puts us to sleep spiritually. Did you know Satan's a pill pusher? He pushes Benadryl on the church, spiritual Benadryl. And what's happening is the church is asleep. We're indifferent. We're very complacent. There's not this desire and urgency to get the gospel out. And so he says to Timothy, Timothy, you need to be spiritually alert. One of my buddies in Miami, I went to go see one night, late night, and uh, he lived in a gated community. And so, in order for me to get in, I had to talk to the security guard and say, I'm here to see my buddy Dave Taylor, and he would call my buddy, and then I would get in. Well, when I got up to the booth, here's what I ran into. Picture. Lights. There's the security guard. As soon as I pulled up, this guy was totally asleep and he was oblivious. And I thought, you know what? I could have just snuck in there and there would have been no problems. But you know what? The church today is spiritually asleep. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 13, he says it's time to wake up from your slumber. And so if you and I are going to be faithful to God in these last days, we must be spiritually alert. Well, there's a seventh thing as we wind down here, and that is this we must seek to rescue the lost. He says to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 5, do the work of an evangelist. You say, Pastor Mike, I'm not an evangelist. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I understand that. We all have different gifts. So if you don't have the gift of evangelism and you're not called to be an evangelist, don't sweat it. Don't put yourself under guilt. On the other hand, the Bible says in Acts 1-8, we're all called to be what? Witnesses. And so just because you don't have the gift doesn't mean that you should not be intentional about reaching lost people. Someone with the gift is going to do it more frequently and with greater passion. That's understandable. But we're all called to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. As I mentioned this Friday, a group of us went to uh, Five Points and we were near the fountain. And so I turned to these two young men and I said, Hey, we're from a church in the area. We were wondering how we could pray for you. And listen, nine out of 10 people talked to us. I think we had one rejection and he even listened for a while. So, I'm telling you, it's not that bad. We get a lot of responses. And so, this particular, um, these two guys, they said, Well, pray for this. And he said, Look, I want you to know right at the outset that I'm a homosexual. I said, Okay. I said, Let's talk about the person of Jesus Christ. And so, he told me his views about religion and why he doesn't believe in a religion that condemns people. Well, of course, people justify their sin, right? They have to have some way of rationalizing their sin. And so, we got in a conversation, and I told him at one point, I said, You know what? I said, you know what? I really appreciate you. I appreciate your honesty. And I think he was taken back by that because usually the church is very venomous towards the homosexual community. Now, I didn't approve of his sin, but I showed him love, and I said, hey, man, I really appreciate your honesty, but I said, I have one question for you. If I could give evidence, because I asked him, who do you think Jesus is, Lord, liar, lunatic? I used the trilogy that C.S. Lewis used. We know Jesus wasn't a legend, So either he's Lord, he lied to people, or he was a nut job, he was a lunatic. People say, well, no, none of those. He was a good teacher. And I say, no, he couldn't be a good teacher because he claimed to be the son of God, the only way to God. And if that's not true, then he lied to people. And that means he's not a good teacher because a good teacher wouldn't do that. So I said, which one of those? He said, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't researched it. I said, well, if it can be proven to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was who he claimed to be, would you become a Christ follower? And he said to me, no. And I said, see, now the reason, it's not an intellectual problem at that point, I said to him. It's not evidence. It's not intellectual. It's not cerebral. I said, the problem is it's moral and emotional, and he agreed with me. That's what Jesus said in John 3. People love their sin, and they don't want the light exposing it. But listen, we're called to reach people for Jesus Christ. Real quickly, I just want to show you this picture. Go to the next slide. I went to Florida fishing. Darken it, please. Lights. This guy that I went on the boat with fishing, look at that net he has. And he was getting ready to get bait for me. Now, watch this. I caught it midair as he's throwing it out, Look at that net. He throws it out there to get the bait fish, and then finally, look what I caught. Nice. You know what? All right, lights back on. We need to cast our net, people. We got to reach people that are going to hell. If we really believe hell is real, if it's a conviction, what are we doing to reach out to people? Well, there's two more real quickly as we wind down. If you and I are going to be faithful to God, we must fulfill our assignment We all have an assignment to fulfill. So did Timothy in verse 5 of chapter 4. He says, Timothy, and by the way, these are all imperatives in the Greek. There's like seven or eight of them in chapter 4. He says, Timothy, discharge all the duties of your ministry. You say, well, I'm not in ministry. Yeah, you are. You may not be in full-time ministry, but the fact of the matter is, we are all servants of Jesus Christ. We are all ministers, and listen carefully. Just as Timothy had an assignment you and I have an assignment from God. You say, Mike, what's my assignment? Please tell me, and I'll fulfill it. Just tell me, Pastor Mike. Well, listen, God may give you some epiphany experience where you go, oh, now I know what my assignment is. Most of us, that doesn't happen. You know what your assignment is? It's based on your shape. You say, what does my body have to do with this? Not your bodily shape, but your spiritual shape. Your spiritual gifts your heart or your passions, what do you desire? What are your abilities or your natural talents? What is your personality and what are your life experiences? All of that forms your spiritual shape. And you know how God gives you an assignment? It's based on that. Whatever that is, God wants you to be faithful to the assignment that He's given you. Why? Because time is short. I have to remind myself of that. I just turned 51 and I'm realizing, man, where is the time going? And I may have 20, 30 years, if I keep eating all them pigs, it's probably going to be shorter. And you know, this week I read about uh, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, and um, some girl invited to him, said, will you come to the prom with me? And he thanked her, and he says, obviously I can't. He says, but you know what? He's a real nice guy, somebody told me. He said, look, the movie that I've just come out with, um, I forget what it is, some monkey movie, Um, what is it called? Rampage. He said, I'm renting out the theater for you. He said this to this girl, and it's free popcorn, free everything. But here's what he said that caught my attention. grabbed me. And speaking of the movies he does, he says, we look at a project, and it has to have scope and size. If it doesn't have scope and size, if it's not going to impact people and make them happy, have global reach, move the needle, we don't do it. And then he said this, we're here for a short time. It's like the movie Gladiator. Remember Russell Crowe, he said to all of the all of the men that were going to fight the battle? He said, Men, remember what we do today echoes throughout eternity. What you and I do today in fulfilling the assignment God has given us based on the gifts is going to echo throughout all eternity. He says, We're here for a short time. We try to do projects that are as big, as important, as impactful as possible. Listen, people, we're here for a short time. Is your life gonna count? When people stand at your funeral, are people going to stand up and say, that person made a difference in my life? And so if you want to be faithful to God in the midst of the muck and mire of the last days, God wants you to discharge all the duties of your ministry, whatever He's called you to do. Well, there's one final point this morning as we close, and that is this. Be determined to finish well. A lot of Christians start off, but they don't finish well. They start off well, but they don't finish well. He says in verse 6, As he's about to get his head cut off by Nero, this was his second Roman imprisonment. He was in the Mamertine prison, he was in a dungeon. He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. Paul saw his life, his martyrdom, as the drink offering that they poured on the sacrifice in the Old Testament. And he says, The time of my departure is near. That's used of a tent that is disassembled. And then as he surveys his life, he says, You know what? As I reflect on the 60 plus years of my life, I have fought the good fight. I didn't come to church and I didn't sit soaking sour. I wasn't just a Sunday Christian only. I fought the good fight of the faith. He says, I finished the race. I just didn't start the race. He said, I crossed the finish line. And he says, I've kept the faith. I've kept my faith in God intact. And I've also held on to the truth of God's word. And then he says, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. That's one of the rewards you and I are going to get. We're going to be perfectly righteous, and we won't have the battle of sin anymore, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul says, you know what? I look back on my life, wasn't perfect. Paul was a murderer. He was a blasphemer. Jesus saved him. But from the time he got saved to the time he was going to have his head cut off by Nero, Paul says, you know what? I have given a maximum effort. I wasn't a spiritual loafer. When I played high school football, sometimes our coaches would yell at us, Nimmer, Nimmer, stop loafing, stop loafing. You're not giving a maximum effort, and you know God wants that from us. Obviously God wants us to enjoy life. He wants us to enjoy all the good things in life He's given us, but listen, we need to be focused. I end with this story, William Borden, great man. As you know, Borden Milk, if you'll see the picture up on the screen. Um, This young man in the early 1900s grew up in Chicago. He was going to inherit his family fortune. And so for his graduation gift, his parents sent him around the world because they wanted him to experience the world. And while he was there, he saw a lot of suffering. He saw a lot of problems. And he wrote his parents back and he said, I want to be a missionary one day. Well, he came back from his summer trip and he enrolled in Yale University. And when he was telling people before he went to Yale that he wanted to be a missionary, some people said, you're wasting your life. Why are you going to be a missionary? And so, tradition says that in his Bible, in the leaf of his Bible, he wrote this word, no reserves. I'm going. I'm doing what God's called me to do. So, he enrolled in Yale. While he was in Yale for four years, God used him mightily. By the time he graduated, there was 1,300 students there, 1,000 of them were involved in a prayer and Bible study small group because of his influence. And so when he graduated, he was offered great jobs, and he turned them all down, and he said, no. And by the way, he would inherit all the money that his parents had with board and milk. He turned it all down, and he said, I'm going to be a missionary, and they said he wrote a second phrase in his Bible. He had no reserves, and then he wrote down, No retreat. No retreat. I'm going to be a missionary. I'm not going to let the wealth distract me. Well, he enrolled at Princeton University and Seminary. He was there for a time. God called him to reach the Muslims in China. And so when he graduated, he went to Cairo, Egypt in order to get trained in Arabic in order to reach the Muslims there. And while he was in Cairo, Egypt, he was 25 years old. He contracted spinal meningitis and he died. News came back to the States and people were grieved because he was a very well-known individual. When they got his Bible, they noticed a third thing he had written in his Bible before he died. No reserves, no retreat, and the last thing he said, no regrets. No regrets. You see, listen, you and I need to finish well. We're all going to have some regrets in our life, maybe that we should have served the Lord more. When I look back, there are things I wish I would have done that I haven't done, but you know what? The past is the past, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. And so, listen, the days are getting worse. We're living in the last days. How does God want us to respond to these last days? He doesn't want us just to be Sunday Christians only. Listen, that's not going to cut it if we're going to reach a lost and dying world for Christ. What does God want us to do? He wants us to separate from corrupting influences he wants us to follow godly examples, hang around people that are going to influence you. He, wants, he, he expects us to endure persecution when it comes. We need to stay grounded in the Word of God. We need to stay connected to the Word of God. We need to preach the Word of God. We need to be spiritually alert. We need to rescue the lost, fulfill our assignment, and finally, finish well. Finish well. How about you this morning? What is God calling you to do? Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word to us and how, Lord, this was written thousands of years ago to Timothy, and yet it has such relevancy for us today. Lord, we know we're living in the last days, and these characteristics that Paul delineates, we can see them so clearly played out in our culture. And Lord, we know it was bad in Paul's day, and we know it's bad in our day, but Father, this is not a cause for sorrow. This is an opportunity for the church to be salt and light. This is an opportunity for us, Lord God, to get the message out. Help us to do that, Father. Father, I want to confess to you, Lord God, the sins of our nation. And Lord, we're doubly accountable, Lord God, because we have had a Christian heritage. We've had exposure to the truth. And yet, Lord, we've suppressed it. Father, forgive us for our rebellion, And Father, forgive the church for being spiritually asleep. Lord, we're caught up many times in our own pursuits and our own material happiness that we forget, Father, that we are here on a mission for a short time. Help us to be focused on you. And Lord, forgive us for being spiritually asleep. May we be awake, Lord. And if you're sitting here this morning, maybe God has spoken to your heart. Maybe God. Is calling you to reach that person or get involved in some type of service. Or maybe God has spoken to you about you need to be in the Word more. Again, this is not about performance to get God to love you, but it's an issue of obedience out of love for God. If God has spoken to you this morning, just take 30 seconds now to do business with God. Father, my prayer is that Calvary Chapel here would be a strong beacon of light in this community. Lord God, that we would be known as a church, not for competitive reasons, but God, a church that teaches the Word and that is intentional about reaching the community and the world for Christ. God, use us for Your honor and Your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we close in worship.